1 John chapter 3, let's just read a couple of verses before we pray. Look in verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So you have the word sin there mentioned several times. What sin is, how you define sin, and Jesus came to take away our sin, and in him is no sin. Tonight we're going to talk about the doctrine of sin. And let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you for your word. And we do pray, Lord, tonight for your help as we teach, as we listen, as we learn. Lord, we, we want to be grounded in your word. And I pray that you'd help all of us, particularly our young people tonight, to just get a good, firm foundation but what the Bible says about these major doctrines, we pray for that. We don't want to be misled, blown about by every wind of doctrine, but firmly grounded in your truth. So we pray that you'd help us tonight to that end. And I pray that we'd not just, Lord, approach it academically, but we'd come to it spiritually. And I, I pray tonight that through the Word of God, that we could have not only a better understanding of what sin is, but a greater uh, concern and fear about the effect of sin in our lives, in our homes, in our culture. And we pray for these things also. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, the technical theological term for the doctrine of sin is hamartiology. Hamartia, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A, is a Greek word that means to miss the mark or to err. So we want to begin by thinking about what sin is. Um, you know, it's really enlightening. I guess the word enlightening might not be the best choice of words, but it's interesting to look at the way the world defines sin and uh, how, how really strange, how unbiblical, how humanistic, uh, the view of sin is. And if we're not careful, those kinds of uh, perceptions will creep into our own lives. So we want to know what is, how does the Bible define sin? What does the Bible say? Because the Bible is the final authority. What does the Bible say about sin? The verse that we began with in verse 4, if you'd look there for a moment, it says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So basically, sin is when we go against God's law, what God says. When we disobey God's law, we are sinning. Sin is not subjective. That means sin is not influenced by our personal feelings or our preferences or our tastes or our opinions. Sin, that's sin right there. <laughs> sin is based on what God's word says. God's word is never changed. Um, I was asked 
in a conversation not too awful long ago by someone who was just asking questions about things that were of interest to them. And they wanted to know if, if what the Bible said about homosexuality or same-sex marriage in the Old Testament is still relevant in the New Testament. And it's good to know that we can just take our Bible and look at what the Bible says to determine. It's not about our culture. It's not about what's socially acceptable. It's what does the Bible say. And it's not about being just being hard and being a redneck. And it's, it's, it's about what does the Bible say. And we need to know what the Bible says. Our opinions have no bearing on whether something is right or wrong. It's God's word. And if we look into God's word, we can... We can sort things out based on the Word of God. I, I, we had a man that uh, many, many years ago uh, took issue with that very subject uh, with me uh, because I teach, because I was teaching or I preached, I was bringing a lesson out, and I brought out that subject and the sin of homosexuality or sodomy, and. And the reason is, because, I guess because they had relatives or whatever, they thought it was a very sensitive subject. It may be a sensitive subject, but sensitivity is not what determines what's right and wrong. The Bible determines what's right or wrong. And uh, go with me if you would, please. And we're going to come back here to 1 John 3, so you might want to keep your place there. But 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. I'll look at an example uh, of this, a couple of examples. First Peter chapter two and verse twelve. Paul, Peter's writing, and he says in verse twelve, "Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles." And as you probably know, or maybe you will know after this, what I say, conversation in the Bible usually doesn't just mean when you're talking to someone. Conversation is your lifestyle your behavior, your demeanor, the way you live your life. So when it says having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, the Gentiles represents the world, means that our lifestyle is, um, has a good testimony before the world. And he develops that as he writes on. Verse 12, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, Glorify God in the day of visitation. And then he says this, in the context of our testimony before the world, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. By the way, that's what governors should do, punish evildoers and they should, verse 14, for the praise of them that do good. That's what God instituted government for. To honor those who do right and judge those who do wrong. That's the purpose of, of God's purpose of divine authority. Obviously, it's been corrupted in so many ways. But the point is here, he says, your lifestyle before the world matters. And so he says, you need to submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Now, we know that there is sort of a caveat to that and that is and it's true if they if the government tells us we can't do what God tells us we should do then we're to obey God and not men but otherwise then we we are to recognize civil authority 
And it goes on and says in verse 15, For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, he didn't say obey the ordinances that you agree with or obey the ordinances that you um, are not affected by. It says obey every, the word there in verse 13, every ordinance of man. Now, you'd have to have been here a long, long time to remember this, but uh, I made an issue. I, I didn't make an issue. I brought this up many, many years ago when they changed the speed limit in St. Clair to 20 miles an hour. I personally think that if there was such a thing as a mortal sin, that should be a mortal sin. Um, but you know what? I still try to obey that speed limit. I don't agree with it. I think it's excessive. But you know why I do it? I do it because it's an ordinance of man, and obeying it doesn't, obeying it doesn't cause me to have to... Uh, compromise my biblical convictions and I'm just saying all that because this is this is God's law right here God's law says obey the ordinance of man right that's the word of God found in the word of God so we ought to obey it and um, a lot of times people want to be subjective about these things you know it's like paying income tax they say well I you know, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a lot of money that I'm not going to report because I think the tax is too much. Well, then, then you get to decide. I get to decide, you know, what laws we're going to obey, what we don't obey. But the Bible says obey every ordinance of man. So, so how do we know what sin is? Sin is the transgression of God's law. It's, and so we need to know what the law says. God's law is the, is the gold standard. For what's right or what's wrong. Whether we think it's, whether we think the laws are um, equitable, whether they sit, we think they're, we're to obey the laws, unless those laws cause us, require us to disobey God's law. And when we break God's law, it is sin. So on the subject of sin, there are three words that are very commonly described, used in the Bible to describe sin. One of them is sin, one of them is transgression, one of them is iniquity. Um, some places they're all used together. We're going we're gonna to come back to 1 John in a moment, but I want you to go to Psalms, if you would, to that uh, very familiar, very famous Psalm, the 51st Psalm, David's Psalm of Repentance after he had sinned with Bathsheba and, and that horrible, horrible time in his life. And he's, he's lamenting his sin. He's dealing with his sin in Psalm 51. I think one of the great chapters of the Bible. But let's look in verse 1. It says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the lo thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my, what? Transgressions. Wash me throughly from mine, there's the second word, iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. So very are these the three most common words that deal with sin. There are others. The first one is sin. It's used the most often. As I said a moment ago, the very word sin uh, comes from this word that means to miss the mark. If you wanted to, if someone asked me, 
to define the word sin, the first definition I would say is this. It means to miss the mark. It is a word related to marksmanship. You know, when you're um, at the range and you're shooting at the target and you're trying to hit the bullseye, uh, you sin probably a lot if you miss the mark. Sin is missing the mark. And what is the mark? The mark is God's standard. God's person, God's character, and God's word is the standard. That's the mark. And if back to our text over there in 1 John, it says in chapter uh, 3, at the last few words of verse 5, it says, In him, talking about Jesus, in him is no sin. He never missed the mark. Not one time did he miss the mark. And by the way, one sin makes us a sinner. You may not, sin, you may not commit all the sins, but the book of James says, Whosoever, nobody ever did this, but whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. Now, I, I think there's some legitimacy to saying some sins are worse than others. They are. Some sins have a greater effect, a longer impact, hurt more people. But still, in the eyes of God, sin is sin. There's no such thing in the eyes of God as a little white lie. They're all lies. Anything that's not the truth is a lie. And to God, that's sin. We, to us, it may not seem that serious, but to God, it does. There Sins can be classified in, in our terms as two types of sins. One is the sin of commission, something we commit, something we do that we should not do is sin. But another sin is a, called the sin of omission. That means it's something we should do, but we don't do. Both of them are sin. The, one, of the, one of the familiar passages in Scripture, and you may not know where it's at, it's the book of Numbers, but it says this, be sure your sin will find you out. Y'all remember that? And that sin was not a sin of commission. It was a sin of omission. Some of the tribes that were to go into the promised land and conquer the land said, we would like to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And we, because we, there's, a, there's good grazing land there. We have cattle. We want to stay there. And so the decision was made. If you will leave your families there, leave your wives and children there and go in with us into the promised land, into Canaan and help us defeat the Canaanites, then when we defeat the Canaanites, you can go back on the other side of the Jordan River and there you can set up camp and that's where you will settle. And if you'll do that, God will bless you. But then he said this, if you don't do it, be sure your sin will find you out. That's not the sin of doing something wrong. That's the sin of not doing something right. Are you with me? And so missing the mark is what sin is. The second word is transgression. And the word transgression is found here in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. The word transgress means to go beyond, to exceed the limits. 
And it's the violate, again, it has to do with the law. It's the transgression of the law. It's to violate the law. I'm going to go to the, I'm going to keep my place here in 1 John. And I'm going to go to Matthew for just a moment. In Matthew chapter 15, if you'd like to turn there. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is uh, dealing, as he often did, with the scribes and Pharisees. And uh, verse 1, it says, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem. We talked about that this morning, saying, They came saying, Why do thy disciples transgress? The tradition of the elders, for they wash not their hands when they eat bread. There's your good hand washing verse right there. Verse 3, but he answered and said unto them, Jesus did, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? You're breaking God's commandments. You're adding more to it. You're going further than you should. So transgression is to go beyond or violate the law. So we have sin, we have transgressions. Thirdly, we have the word iniquity. Iniquity means wickedness, means crookedness, it means lawlessness. I'm gonna, you may be still in Matthew, and if you are, I want to look at Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, we'll look at a couple of passages on this subject of iniquity, but Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, we'll just read a couple of these verses. Verse 21 says, Not everyone, Jesus is speaking, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now what were they doing, these people? They were casting out devils. They were prophesying or preaching. And they were doing many wonderful works. But Jesus said he would say to them, You work iniquity. Why was it iniquitous? Because it was not, it was crooked, it was lawless. It wasn't according to God's plan or God's will. And God calls that iniquity. And uh, it's a serious sin. I'm going to James right now. I know we're looking at several verses tonight, but um, the Bible has a lot to say about this. Here in James chapter 3, and it's a very long context, but I'm just going to look at one verse in it. It has to do with the tongue, the power of the tongue, our words, ill-advised words, the need to control our language. James chapter 3 and verse 6 says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. Again, the word iniquity means it's just wickedness, lawlessness. So there are many other words that have to do, uh, sometimes trespass is another one, have to do with sin, but these are the primary words for sin. So, so what is sin? Sin is breaking God's law. Sin is disobeying God. Um, the Bible says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, it is what? Sin. When you know you're supposed to do something, you don't do it, it's sin. 
And you say, well, I, I, just, I just wasn't sure. I wasn't convicted about that. If God says it, we ought to do what God says. Sin is a very serious thing. And I want to talk about that for a few moments. The serious nature of sin. You know, the Bible says this, that sin is pleasurable for a season. Talking about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11. And the reason people sin, the reason we sin, all of us sin, is because it's something that we prefer to do, something we want to do, something we would enjoy doing. It could be something saying something hurtful about someone. It could be watching something we shouldn't watch. But sin is a serious thing. And we need to take sin seriously. And I want to give you a few reasons, just a few, that we should take sin very seriously. First of all, our sin makes us guilty before God. There's nothing more important in life, young person, than you getting to do what you want. And that most important thing is that we are pleasing to God. That we have a relationship with God. Sin makes us guilty before God. Let's go to Romans chapter 3, the place that many of us have gone a number of times to try to show somebody in the Bible why they need to be saved. And the reason people need to be saved is because they've sinned. They're guilty before God. All of us are guilty before God because of our sin. In Romans chapter 3, let's just read through these verses without a lot of comment. Let's begin in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all, A-double-L all, they're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. I wonder about all the good works people, all the people who are trying to do good to appease God if they've never read that verse. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher with their tongues they've used to deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Talking about their words, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. All and the way of peace have they not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now notice his reference, Paul's reference to the law. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that, ev that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Why is the whole world guilty before God? Because all of us have sinned. All of us have broken God's holy law. They're not God's suggestions. They're God's commandments. And before God, we're all guilty. Verse 23 summarized that when he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. All of us. We're all guilty. We've all sinned. We've transgressed God's law. So why is sin serious? Because it makes us guilty 
before God. But second of all, sin is serious because it has a devastating effect. And one of those effects is the, re, relates to what I just said, that it separates us from God. Sin separates us from our Creator. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that we're aliens. We're without hope, without God in the world. We're separated from God. Sin blinds us. It's not... It's not um, an oversimplification or exaggeration either to say that the real problem in America is a sin problem. People who hate people because of the color of their skin, that's a sin problem. People hate anybody, it's a sin problem. People who are lawless, people who destroy other people's property and loot, that's a sin problem. People who who use their authority in the wrong way, that's a sin problem. So it's so really our biggest problem is a sin problem, but the but the problem with that is sin blinds people. So they can't see it. They really can't see it. First John 2 says this in verse 11: He that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth. Because that hath, sin hath blinded his eyes. He, doesn't, he can't see. He, he's blinded. It's like walking in the dark. And what has made them, we say, why can't they see that? Because they're blind. Blind people cannot see. And by the way, that can even apply to church members. In Revelation Chapter 3, talking about the layout of sea in church, it says, Thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Blind people can't see. People can sit in church and, and not really be where they need to be spiritually, but because they're in sin, they're blind. And they can say, well, there's nothing wrong with me. That's what he said about them. You say... I'm rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing. You say, I think I'm okay. You prob people probably say, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. But you know why we say those things? Because we're blind. Because sin has blinded us. But if the blinders could be taken off, we see ourselves as we are. We'd see ourselves as guilty. That we've sinned. Sin blinds people. I'm talking about the devastating effect of sin. And that's what's happening in our culture. Thirdly, sin not only separates us from God or blinds people, but sin hardens. Hebrews chapter 3 says this, Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know what sin does? If we, if we even as we sin, we sin, we don't get it right, we, we harbor it in our heart, our heart just gets harder. We're sort of become numb, callous. Our conscience becomes seared. Why? Because sin has a devastating effect. You cannot sin without being repercussions. Nobody can. If you're sitting here saying, but I can, you're, you're just showing that you're blind. Because nobody can. Let God be true and every man a liar. Sin hardens us. I 
I would imagine, and, I'm, and I think I've had conversations to this end, to this effect, but I, I would imagine that if someone sat in a church service that came on Sunday morning, came on Sunday night, came on Wednesday night, and, and it was just like God was always pricking their heart and God was always convicting them of something and dealing with them about something and making changes in their life, a person might say, it's like God is always on my case. God's always dealing with me as though that's a bad thing. But let me tell you what a far worse thing is. And that's when you hear preaching and it doesn't affect you. When it doesn't touch you. And all that says, and it's not about how good the preacher is, it's about the Word of God. The Word of God should speak to our The Word of God should reveal things to us. So sin hardens us. A fourth thing about, a fourth devastating effect of sin is it binds us. It enslaves us. Sin wants to capture us. Sin wants to captivate us. A very powerful passage, I believe, in Proverbs chapter 5 says this. Think about this. His own iniquities shall take the wicked himself, and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. Sin is addictive. Sin is enslaving. The sin of lying is enslaving. The sin of lust. Where do you think, where do you think addictive behavior comes from? Drugs, drinking, pornography, gambling. People go go to the gambling casinos. They go to enjoy, have some fun. It's fun. We're going to go just uh, eat the buffet and play the slot machines a little bit. I don't know about that personally. My wife's told me about it, though. (laughs) But I'm telling you, when we sin, there is a spiritual element that we may not be aware of. This, this, you know what it wants to do? What Satan wants to do? It wants to drive a wedge between us and God. It wants to destroy our sensitivity to God. And it wants to, it wants to introduce a harmful addiction, a draw, a pull to bind us. I want to read these words again. The, you, ought to, you ought to write this down if you're not familiar with this verse, Proverbs 5.22. His, his own iniquities shall take the wicked himself and he shall be holden with the cords of his sins. When Paul was writing to the Roman believers in Romans chapter 6, he says, you were the servants of sin. You were the servants of sin. And sometimes people can't see that. I would, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever recognized that. But I can honestly say that in my life, uh, before the grace of God came into my life, before I was saved, I really was a servant of sin. I got up every day and I had a master that I was serving. And that master was sin. Selfishness, pride, all those kind of things. It's, 
sin, person says, well, I, I can, and I thought this too, I can stop anytime I want to. I can, I'm the, the master of my own destiny. I'm telling you, sin captivates us. Until we, it's easier to sin than it is not to sin. Jesus said this in John 8, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. When a person commits sin, they become the servant of sin. Have you ever heard people say, you know, I don't know what happened. I just started doing this a little bit. Or maybe they're even talking about something as simple as uh, not going to church or not doing this or what's something they were doing. What are they, I don't know. I just started doing it. Before you knew it, it just got easier not to do it than it was to do it. That's the way sin works. That's the way sin works. And how, and how far will it go? I'm a, I mentioned the book of Romans, and we read from Romans 3, but if you're still in Romans, go just to the left a couple of pages to Romans 1, where we have the classic, the classic description of where sin can take a person. You've all heard that admonition. It's true. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. That's what sin does. Romans 1 illustrates this. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. I just want to read through it. For a good example of what we're talking about, where sin will lead us. It says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I don't care what anybody says. God is never pleased with ungodliness and unrighteousness. And if a person believes that, they either don't know what the Bible say, says or they reject what the Bible says. And then he says this in verse 18, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. They've got the truth but they're still living unrighteous lives. Now that is a dangerous combination. To have the truth, but still living ungodly. Verse 19, for, because that which, was, uh, which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. God ha is always making himself and his truth known. It says in verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. His creation manifest his person. Even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God. They glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful. What happens when you reject the truth? What happens when you, when you know about God. But you think with me. What happens when a person rejects the truth about God? Verse 21 says, but became vain in their imaginations. They began to think all kinds, imagine vain things, and their foolish heart was darkened. That's what happens when we sin, when we turn away from truth, when we begin to walk in, truth, begin to walk in lies. Verse 22, professing themselves to be wise. I've heard many of them. Talking. People who've rejected God or turned away from God, living in sin, they know it all. Professing themselves to be wise, I know better, but the Bible says they became fools. Verse 23, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men and to birds and 
four-footed beasts and creeping things. They're worshiping the creation more than the creator. Verse 24, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. This is what's happening in our world today. God gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, giving them what they want to dishonor their bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections, corrupt, vile, wicked desires, affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. It's a bad thing when God gives up on you, isn't it? It's a bad thing when God lets you have your way. Well, if I could just have my way, it wouldn't be pleasant if we could have our way. He goes on to say in verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And he lists a whole lot of other things. I'm just saying sin leads to reprobation. Sin, does not, sin never leads to holiness. Sin never leads to spirituality. Sin never leads to blessing. Sin leads to reprobation, to moral corruption. Hearts being darkened. It doesn't matter how much a person believes something is so, if it's against God's law, it's not right. It's not right. So sin has a devastating effect. It separates us from God. It blinds, it blinds people. It hardens them. It binds and enslaves them. It leads to reprobation. And the last thing is sin brings judgment. Sin will bring God's judgment. Uh, I'm going to go uh, to John chapter 3, the gospel of John, and look at two passages that speak about this in this great, great passage about Nicodemus and the new birth and for God so loved the world, this great John chapter 3 chapter. Let's look in verse 18 first of all. Where it says, he that believeth on him, talking about on Jesus, is not condemned. John 3, 18. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. See, unsaved people are already condemned. They're already guilty before God. Verse 36 kind of adds another layer to that. If you look in the same chapter, verse 36, it says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. People can go around living in sin, doing their own thing, you know, flaunting their wickedness, but what they don't know is the wrath of God is already abiding on them. Sin brings 
judgment. The lost, now this is where all of us were at one time in our life. The lost are already spiritually dead. But one day they're going to face everlasting punishment. Everlasting punishment. That's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? That passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 where it says that Jesus will one day come back in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God. And I know that's a... People, so many people in our day and age are so enlightened, and I use that as tongue in cheek, that they know that God could not be such a bad, evil God that he would cast people into hell. But God will indeed pronounce everlasting judgment on people who do not know the Lord. You know why? Because they've rejected Jesus Christ. They've rejected salvation. They've rejected God. And they're going to... You say, well, I don't, think, I don't think the God of the New Testament would do that. The God of the New Testament is the same God that destroyed the world in Noah's day. He's the same God that rained fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah. God has not changed. Your view of God may have changed. My view of God may have changed. But God has not changed. So sin ultimately is going to bring judgment. So that's what sin is and that's what sin does for us. So what is the remedy? There's only one remedy for sin. And I want to go back to where we started in 1 John chapter 3 where John writes in verse 5, he says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. That's the only remedy for sin. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not reforming. It's not being a better person. It's putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He was manifested to take away our sins. To me, one of the most obvious, apparent illustrations of how God feels about sin is to look at what God allowed His Son to go through to save people from their sin. Sin is a horrible thing. I'm not standing up here saying it because I never think about it or I never sinned or I've never... I'm just saying sin is a horrible thing. Don't base what you think about sin on your opinion or anybody else's opinion. Base what you believe about sin on the Word of God. But the good news is God wants to forgive us our sins. He wants to cleanse us of our sins. The writer of Hebrews says, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. It's only through Jesus Christ that a person can be forgiven. Sacrifice is the only way to remove, to deal with the guilt and separation from God that sin causes. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. As you think about this matter, this subject, this doctrine... And, and when I think about it, I think, of, I think of the only two categories of people there are in the world, those that are unsaved and those that are saved. And all of us have sinned. And only Jesus, as I said, can forgive us our sins. And I'm, I am passionate about this. I am concerned, I am alarmed when lost people don't take sin seriously. 
But as believers, we need to take sin seriously as well. Uh, I don't know if you're ever exposed to this, but I've certainly been exposed to this numerous times. I could say many times where believers have the attitude, well, I'm, you know, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, it's not that big a deal. I want to tell you, that's not a biblical point of view. That's not a biblical way to look at sin. So let's just talk for a few moments about how believers should take sin seriously. Let me just, let's take a good example that you would uh, think if you thought a moment you could remember it in Romans chapter 7. This is what the Apostle Paul said. I'm of the persuasion that Paul was in a pretty good place spiritually. Wouldn't you imagine that? But he said this, for I know that in me, in me, Paul says, in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. There's nothing good in my flesh, in me. The flesh is not just your physical body. The flesh is your human sinful nature. And I'll tell you, young person, please hear me. We need, if we're exposed to this, you need to tune out all this this rhetoric, this, this language, this mantra that says you're good, you can do anything, please yourself, find yourself, put yourself first. There's no good thing that dwells in you that is within your flesh. Period. That's what the Bible says. Even Job, think about Job. Job was renowned for his devotion to God. Nobody on the planet, according to God's own testimony in Job 1, feared God and hated evil like Job did. But at the end of the, cha- end of the story, at the last chapter of Job, as we come to the end of the narrative, this is what Job said. I have heard of thee with the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye hath seen thee, and I abhor myself. I hate the person that I have seen myself to be. It's wise for us. And I'm not going to say that I'm always there, but it would be wise for us to develop a hatred for sin. A hatred for sin. A disdain for sin, for what it does. And again, you know, you hear more and more, even believers making light of sin. Let me tell you what the Bible says. Fools make a mock at sin. It's a foolish person who does not take sin seriously. On the flip side of that, on the other side of that, we ought to desire to be holy. That's what we ought to want to be, not sinful. Young person, it's never the, the, the discussion in our mind, the, the introspection in our mind should never be, how far can I go and get away with this and not get in trouble? What our attitude should be, how close could I be to God and being a holy, separated Christian? That's what we ought to be. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Hebrews says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Do you, are you saying, preacher, that we could never sin? I think the Bible is very clear about this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But as Christians, we're to confess our sins. What does it mean to confess your sins? It means to agree with God about it. Say, God, I was wrong. What I said was wrong. What I thought was wrong. 
That conversation was not what it should have been. Now, think with me for a moment. I'm going to ask you to really pay attention to what I'm about to say. Positionally, when, I'm, when I say position, I mean our position spiritually as a true believer, as someone who's born again, positionally, theologically, all our sins are forgiven. All our past sins are forgiven. All our present sins are forgiven. And all our future sins are forgiven. According to the Bible. I was asked once. I've been asked this more than once. But I was asked it fairly recently. But I'm asked this a number of times. Uh, if a Christian, if a true Christian committed suicide, would they go to heaven? And what would you say to someone who asked it? If a Christian takes their life, can they go to heaven? And you know where that comes from? It comes from the notion that in order for us to be forgiven, we have to confess our sins. If you take your life, you're not alive to confess your sins. So it's like it's the unpardonable sin. But I said to this person, if a person was truly saved, and they took their life, they're going to go to heaven because our going to heaven does not depend on us confessing every sin we do. Our going to heaven depends on the fact that we've received Jesus our Savior and He has forgiven us of all of our sins. And someone may ask, well, how can, how can future sins, those you've not yet committed, be already forgiven? How can you say that Things that are in your future that you've not even done, how can you know they're going to be forgiven? But think about it like this. When Jesus died on the cross, how many of your sins were in the future? They were all in the future. And he forgives us of all of our sins. He died for all of our sins. Aren't you glad about that tonight? So why do we confess our sins then? For one thing, we confess our sins to restore fellowship with God. In that famous passage in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's talking about Christians. But before that, in verse 6, he says, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all of our sins. We have fellowship with God, but when we sin, it doesn't chop our relationship, it hinders our fellowship with God. Confession is, like I said earlier, is agreeing with God about our sin. And you know what's going to happen? I, you, can, you can take this to the bank. You know what's going to happen if a Christian sins and they don't confess it and they don't get it right? What do you think is going to happen? Two things can happen. Number one, they'll be chastised. They'll be chastened. The Bible clearly teaches this. If, you, if you're a Christian and you sin... God's going to deal with you about it. He may deal with you gently at first. He may deal with you more severely. But he's going to deal with you. I promise you he is. You say, well, what if he doesn't? Then you're not saved. You're not saved. The Bible is so clear about that. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, you don't believe the Bible then. And anybody that's in this room that is a Christian who has a serious walk with God knows that when they sin, God deals with them about it. But you know what will happen if... If you don't respond to God's correction, I'm going to end with this. You know what will happen to a Christian, a true Christian, who refuses 
who refuses to repent, to get right, to confess, you know what's going to happen? James, uh, 1 John chapter 5 says this, they commit the sin unto death. The sin unto death. We know what that is. That when, when God takes a person, when God takes one of his children out of this life as a form of chastisement, it's the sin unto death. Read it. The Bible says if you see a brother sin and the sin's not unto death, you'll give life to him. In other words, if you see someone sinning and they're a Christian, pray for them and they'll come around. But he says if they've committed the sin unto death, John says you might as well not even pray for them because God's going to take them out. I would tonight, I would suggest tonight, I would say tonight that by and large, I'm not talking about our church necessarily, I'm not talking about all Christians, but I say by and large, people in our world do not have a biblical view of sin, of how it ought to be treated, of how it should be repented of about the effects of it, about the harm that it brings. I'll tell you what, if you if you'd asked David after he witnessed the severe chastisement in his nation, in his life, in his family because of his sins, David, would you would you make that decision to do that again? I guarantee you'd say not in a thousand years would I do it. But you know what? He committed sin. He disobeyed. And God who is holy, God his Father who is holy, dealt with him. Even when he wouldn't admit it, he sent Nathan the prophet to confront him directly. And there were still consequences. There were still consequences. Consequences with the child that died. There were consequences. Other consequences. Sin needs to be taken seriously. And if nobody else in this room understands or appreciates or take this serious, I want to take it serious. I, I don't want to be lied about sin in my own life. Amen? So there's two groups of people here tonight. Those who are saved and those who are not. And for both groups of people, this matter of the doctrine of sin has great implications. If you're not saved, the wrath of God abides on you. You're already condemned. You've heard the gospel. Jesus died for you. He paid for your sins. And yet if you don't receive him, if you don't trust him, you're going to die in your sins and go to hell. You ought to think about that. I'll tell you, may God help us to take that serious. And if you're saved, we should take sin more seriously because we have a more of a sensitivity and awareness than even lost people ever would about what sin is, what sin would do. I don't mean we ought to go around judging people. It means we ought to take our own lives seriously. Amen? Let's bow our heads together, all right? With our heads bowed this evening, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. As you already know, most of you anyway, I've just felt compelled to have a series of lessons on Sunday nights about some of the major doctrines of the Bible. 
course, we could preach on this subject for weeks and weeks. But tonight, would you, would you take it seriously in your own heart? If you're not saved tonight, the only thing standing between you and eternal life is you've got to come to Jesus Christ. I would compel you to do that tonight. We'll be here to help you with that if you need some help. And if you're a believer tonight, let's take our sin seriously. Our Father, as we pray this evening, we thank you for the precious word of God. And, and Father, we've dealt tonight with such a simple subject, but such an important subject. The subject of our personal sin. God, would you work in hearts tonight? We pray for that, that your word would not return void. I pray that the Spirit of God and the Word of God would convict us, would encourage us, would edify us, would challenge us, would give us what we need tonight. We pray for that. 